Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Accelerator. I'm Michael Conniff. I'll be your host today. Uh, we're a podcast dedicated to founders and entrepreneurs and uh, all of the people who make the startup world happen, including angels and uh, VCs and family offices and the like. We also have a companion podcast now called The Angel, also on Spotify and YouTube for video and uh, for audio. It's on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, uh, Audible, and about a dozen other uh, platforms. It's hard not to find us. Today, we have a very, very interesting and intriguing guest. Mr. Russell Brand is director um, at Responsible Solutions Limited. He's also entrepreneur in residence at Founders Institute. Um, welcome, Russell. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. And uh, Russell, I should point out, is um, partners and buddies with uh, Chris Foltz, who's also uh, a like-minded um, Founders Institute entrepreneur uh, in residence, I believe, and also a um, he has a bigger title than that even, I think. But you guys are partners in Responsible Solutions. So uh, let's start there, Russell. Where did, where did the idea for... And the impetus for Responsible Solutions, where did that start and how did it happen? Well, Responsible Solutions at this point is a very old company. We began in 1994 with the mission of bringing open source technologies, which back then didn't have a name, to the federal government. Our idea was that we could complete entire projects using less time and less money than it would normally take the federal government to just award the contract. By some measures, we saved the taxpayer about a quarter billion dollars over the course of seven years. We went from there to trying to help companies be more effective. And what we would say is, you know, there are some times where people skimp on environmental issues or aren't nice to their employees or aren't responsive to customers to become more profitable. And while I don't like that, I understand it. But there are many cases where companies are doing terrible things to the environment, their employees, and the customers. It's making them less profitable and less effective. So we would go, starting with data centers, and say, we can save a whole lot of electricity. We save a lot of electricity. That saves you a lot of money. That has, you know, that's, that's better profit. That's better for the environment. That's a story you can tell. Oh, in, then we would go and say, in your call centers, you have these brilliant, brilliant ideas that have no way of getting to your decision makers. So if we just go and talk to your call center operators, we can find things that will go and make your customers happier, um, give you more customers, make you more profitable, have fewer returns. Everyone wins. And we would go through for the next almost 10 years helping companies to be more profitable by being corporate citizens. In the most recent years, we've been focusing on early stage companies. And there are early stage companies that have potential to do great things in the world, but the adoption curve can be very slow. Some of the technologies that we're really favoring were perfected in the 1970s. 50 years later, they still haven't gotten market acceptance, even though they are better, cheaper, more profitable, more everything. So we're looking to help small companies to overcome the inertia of doing things the old way, rather than the better way that they would propose. And you've been a, a software person 
for a very long time, for for at least as long as '94, probably many years before. Um, uh, was, would you was, do you consider yourself still sort of a? Go ahead. So I've been a software person since the 1970s. My first programming was literally wire <laughs> wire punch boards, and I went from there to paper tape, and from there to key punch cards. And I learned to fix key punch machines, so I'd always be able to to do key punch programming and. The idea that screens are, have color on them in multiple fonts, it's still a novelty to me. Still amazing. So just for the record, describe what key punch computing is for people who have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, well, back in the deep, dark, distant past, when dinosaurs still roam the earth, we had <laughs> the, the way that most programming was done was you made holes in something, either long paper tapes or little cards, and the computer would read the program by either optically seeing where the holes were, or more often by having little metal brushes that would detect where that detect where the holes were. And we would have a key punch machine, sort of like a typewriter, but big and heavy, and you would type and it would punch holes in the cards, and you would then stack those cards up and feed them into a card reader. And that's how you get your program there. And, you know, heaven help you if you drop the card deck, it would fall and fall that's out of sequence. That's how you created software back then. Now, um, respond, now I, 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 one thing that's very interesting about your background, among many things, is that you've actually done an, uh, a, a large amount of work for government agencies. And some of it, reading between the lines, looks rather secretive. Um, and and may not be may not allow you to talk easily about them. But what can you tell us about your your uh, time writing programs for the government? So much of the work we did for the government and Responsible Solutions Limited wasn't classified. We were taking large, large existing systems that would do things like sort mail, and we say, oh. We can find a way to do this better or more, more easily. We were looking at that point of taking lots of programs that were running on either old, either very old machines or running on large numbers of quote, modern machines running windows. We would take those things and we'd move them on to uh, what was then uh, probably the best of read Unix machines by Sun Microsystems. And we would often replace several hundred machines with a single machine. And that would save all this power. That would save all this, um, all this manpower as well. We would take systems where you had a whole staff of people that would restart them because they need to be restarted every four to 20 hours and have them run for years without a problem. We would read through lots and lots of new systems developed for the government to assess that they that they're going to run reliably that there aren't any backdoors in them so all of that i can talk about freely before that we did work in what we called um, artificial intelligence aided software archaeology and i spent seven years reading or more precisely running programs that would read existing programs so my programs read tens of millions of lines of other programs they read through autopilots and tests for autopilots. They read through um, every major release of several of the commercial databases that here are lines of code that, that are probably going to be problems. Here's where you should look. 
we wrote one system that became the cover story of communications of the ACM, where over the course of 20 years, a firm had been cut and pasting COBOL programs to do tracking. We were a program that smushed it all back together into one pro into one program, you know, sort of two or three percent the size of the original program. That mm -hmm. said, out of that, here are the sections that we think are gonna have problems. Rewrite these preemptively. So all that I can talk about. Um, before that, I was working at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, and um, that was computer security and nuclear weapons. And we can talk less about that. What I can say is the modern um, computer emergency response team infrastructure that I helped set up that and show the need for that. And I was one of the people that found the original Morris worm. And we had a, eventually a GAO study about why our teams saved everything and it cost very, the public very little money <clears throat> and why much of the rest of the world had huge expenses and were down for, for weeks fixing it. Forgive me, but what is the Morris worm? I don't know that. Ah. So in the 1980s, <clears throat> we had the first large scale piece of malware in the world. Um, Bob, uh, Bob, <clears throat> Bob Morris, son of Robert Morris, the, 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 the gentleman at NSA, he wrote a program that took over most of the email servers in the modern world and brought the internet, the, the then internet to its knees. What year and, would that have been, Russell? Yeah, I'm sorry? What year was that? Oh, I don't know, like 1986, 1987. Okay. And, and we had people all over the country working together to try to figure out what was happening and to design countermeasures. And we were a community that talked to each other by email. We didn't have each other's phone numbers and so, and so it became a whole step of how do we find each other to collaborate when we can't do that by, by email. And it was, you know, eventually the code was disassembled and understood and we saw what it did and we, we, we fixed it and we put the world back together. But that was a, that, that was the, the first wake up call to the world about what's now cybersecurity. And that launched the the modern world of antiviral software and the modern arms race of of cyber, of, of cyber attacks between nation states. Let me let me ask you. Um, it's kind of an amazing story. You 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 had all this um, uh, experience uh, that you just described in, in the early days of software, earlier days. So let's let's fast forward if we could more toward the present where um, where you decide to get into the startup world and um, you have you and your partner Chris Fultz have kind of an interesting combination of uh, mentorship, advisory services, uh, fee-based services, equity-based services. So if I'd appreciate it if you could sort of explain to us how you met Chris and then how that evolved as well. Cause you two guys could not be more different. That's one of the things I like, I like about you. So how did that all come about? Well, Chris and I actually met at, at founder Institute founder Institute. In addition to providing training programs for people starting companies and training programs, for people who want to start venture funds. They actually have training programs for people who want to be, 
mentors to founders. And Chris and I met at one of the, those programs, one of the early programs. I was there be, before there were such programs. And you know, I'm really good at what needs to be fixed before this can, can go forward. What are the things that are going to kill you? But I have the reputation of being the, you know, the Simon Cowell, if you will, of Founder Institute. I, I don't necessarily say these things in the nicest, most encouraging, most inspiring way. Sort of the, the, the wake of dead bodies where Chris, Chris is inspiring. Chris can, can really focus in on what people are doing right and what can they aspire to be. And so if I can find the things that'll go wrong and Chris can find all the things that can go right between that, that's, that's, that's very powerful. And from working with Chris, I've now got a whole new skill set, which I call finding the hidden gems. Mm. This will sound odd, but there are so many companies that come into the program that have done amazing things that never mention them. They don't know that they are amazing. One no, of the companies. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, my, most companies don't know what they've got or even who they are sometimes. One of the companies came in and hadn't bothered to mention that they had received $50 million in non-dilutive funding. <laughs> you think $50 million would be worth mentioning, but, you know, but it took me weeks and weeks to, to pull this out of them and get it into the investor pitch. We had a company that had, you know, more than two and a half million subscribers to their service and hadn't mentioned it. And, and before I met Chris, I didn't ask the right questions to find these things. So I'm never going to be as good at it as Chris is. But now I have a whole new mission of finding the hidden gems within the companies. And, and it amazes me how often there are great, great things that the people take for granted because you know, that's the part they've been doing for a long time. So once you find a company, Russell, what what do you find yourself doing to help them? So a lot of different things. You know, say, say every happy family is happy in the same way and every miserable family is miserable in a different way. Well, there are lots of things that have to go right for a company to succeed. And different companies have different challenges. And I still say that rather than saying they have different hidden gems. So most companies fail because they haven't talked to enough users. They build products that no one wants. Back in the days of software, go back to the 1970s, 1980s, 19 out of 20 federal, federally funded internal use, large scale software programs where the code worked at the end, met all the specs, never got deployed because the specs weren't understood well. Mm. Right. In one National Science Foundation study, they say, oh, there are startup companies that talk to fewer than 20 customers. There are startup companies that talk to more than 100 customers, almost nobody in between. You can guess which group does better. Hmm. So a big part of what I'm doing with early companies is saying, have you talked to customers? Are they anyone who really wants this? There's a big space out there, and rather than being mediocre at everything, trying to outcompete the big boys by being cheaper. Can we find some segment of the world 
some population where you can be the best thing. Don't tell me you want 3% of the universe. Tell me about a population you can get 40, 60, 90% of. And so we better target them for customers. Second, yeah, keep going. Sorry. Second thing that we do is try to help people come up with cost-effective ways to test that what they have is, is good. And whether that's making something on cardboard or making a piece of throwaway code. We had one case where a startup company has spent $15,000 developing a prototype, which didn't work. And in the course of an hour, I built them a prototype, which I then went out and got customer feedback on. So there are, are many people that can't describe what they're doing well enough to have a prototype written, or they end up coming in contact with you know, disreputable people that take advantage of them. So we can help them with, with getting those prototypes and tests. But the vast majority of my time is spent in helping people create a better version of their story, a better way that they can explain it to colleagues, distributors, investors, you know, even their grandmother. Because at the point that you can't talk about it well, it's very hard for people to help you. A it's, little it's, bit of Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say um, Reid Hoffman and Blitzscaling puts a lot of emphasis, uh, not just on talking to customers, but on focusing on your first 100 customers. Um, and there's a very clever reason why, which is that this is probably the last time you'll get to know all your customers <laughs> when you only have a few. And so you better dig in and dig down and find out what they're really looking for and what they want. I think that's great advice. And on the market research side, um, I did market research for a long time back in the eighties, being a fellow dinosaur. Um, and in the eighties, um, what I've, I kind of came to this conclusion that now this is more relevant to corporations that are more established and have more customers, but it's still, it's still relevant to startups, which is amongst your users, even early users, you are going to find some super users. You're going to find incredible users who really know what you're doing more better than you do, probably. And those users, let's call them the top 5% of your users. And so what I used to say to people was like, if you really want to go somewhere with this thing, um, like GE was one of the people, I, companies I work with. I said, if you really want to go somewhere with this thing, just listen to your, the top 5% of your customers. Listen to your smartest customers. They will tell you what you need to do. And all you need to do is then do what they say. And it sort of takes the guesswork out of it, don't you think? Oh, a lot of truth to that. On the startup side of things, when people tell me about their ideas, Often I'll just go on to Reddit and say, how do I do this? Does anyone else have this problem? And, you know, I find one of several things. I either find people say, yeah, life sucks. I got that problem too. I wish I had a solution. Say, it's probably a market there. People who say, oh, it's hard to do, but here's a workaround I found. And find those people. Those are the early adopters. Oh, and yeah. sometimes it's like, oh, well, you know, there's this $5 piece of shareware or there's this $20 thing you buy on Amazon that just does this great. And, and you find the competitors and you say, and sometimes they say, well, I don't need to build a company. I'll just buy this thing for 20 bucks or, <laughs> or that meets the needs of some people. And I'm going to find a segment where a segment of people that that doesn't work for. 
but the, mm -hmm. the number of, of times that I type someone's idea into Google and I come up with five companies that are doing similar things and they've heard of none of them is scary. That is very practical advice. If you have an idea, type it into Google or even chat GPT these days and see what, see what comes up. Um, what are you actually a fine point there? Yeah. But I yeah. actually suggest when you have that idea that you type it into Bing GPT rather than chat GPT. Okay. Why is well, that? Chat GPT does better at doing inferencing and pulling things together. Bing GPT is much better at having up-to-date information. And any company that was started the past year, you know, chat GPT just doesn't know about. Yeah, true, true. Now, um, what companies in particular, in particular, are you working with right now that are getting you excited? Who are they and, and what are they doing that you can tell us about? Well, I think the most exciting company at the moment is Datum Nexus, which is doing something which probably sounds dull, but it's important. They've built an AI system that reads through contracts. You now, a cell phone company or an oil company is going to have thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of similar lease agreements for a cell, a cell phone antenna or a right of way for a pipeline. They need to go and they need to renew contracts. They need to pay contracts. It's massive amounts. You know, it's it's warehouses full of paper otherwise. And a detail that's missed can be millions of dollars. And so you have all of these very bright people putting massive amounts of time into reading these things. At the point that we can have a machine do that, then we can free up all those bright people to do better and more important things. And that's working well. Is that it is it doesn't sound practical, is it? Well, what it it, it works, so I guess it so it, it works. It works better than people do. People aren't even even smart yeah. people. It's dull no, as hell. I, um, I think it's it's kind of a brilliant, and the idea is so mundane. It, you know, it's one of those things where you also think, well, probably a lot of people are doing this, but maybe not. So, so that's well, very interesting. Any others you want to share with us? Let's, let's stay with this one for just a moment. So we look at this problem and it's a tractable problem. It's not all understanding in the world. It's not all contracts. It's not so big that it's going to be terribly, terribly hard. It's not going to be so big that some multinational is going to do it, but it's going to be big enough that it's going to have valuable impact on the world. It's going to make a lot of money. And so picking a problem which is big enough to be worth doing, but not big enough to be hard or stolen from you, that's a very valuable and important step for a, for a startup. Now, another mm -hmm. company we're working with is called Meva, and Meva is making a better type of concrete. At this point, How do you concrete, spell that? How do you spell that one? How do you spell that one? Um, M-A-A-V-A. M-A-A-V-K. Okay, and they're making a different kind of concrete. Well, concrete, you know, concrete is the most commonly used <clears throat> material by humans other than water itself. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's very polluting. It's a lot of energy to take it. It's a lot of greenhouse gases emitted and... 
It's one of those things where if you can make life just a little bit better, multiply that over all the concrete in the world. Now, making concrete now takes sand, a lot of sand. And surprisingly, there's a sand shortage because not all sand is created equal. You can't use ocean sand because ocean sand has all the salt in it. Mm. And you can't use desert sand because the desert sand has been blown in the wind and is too round. So, so the only sand you can use is river sand. And there just isn't that much river sand in the world. And so there's a becomes a sand shortage. There's environmental problems of going and pulling up that sand. There's whole, at this point, organized crime rings around sand. So at the point we can replace a little bit of that sand, that's great. At the point that we can go and rather than having concrete emit carbon, have concrete actually sequester carbon, that's a big, that's a big deal. Make concrete that's a, that lasts a little longer or concrete that's a little bit lighter so you don't have to use quite as much of it. This is one of those things where very small improvements multiply over huge things and have world impact. So that's an exciting company as well. And you know, they're, they're as different as there can be. The third company, yeah, that, the third yeah, company yeah. that's of, of interest is um, Traction Health. And they have an instrumented inner soul. And there are lots of reasons, technical reasons, why making an instrument inner soul is hard. People have been working on this for a very, very long time. And, and now they have something that, that actually works. At the point that we can measure what's going on with your feet, a lot we can tell. When people get tired, the way they walk, the way they stand is a little different. So you can notice that someone's muscles are tiring before they get injured, pull a football player off the field, take a warehouse worker mm -hmm. off the line, get your running trainer to not hurt himself. Or a soldier. Yes, definite applications there, because the soldiers and, and the and more for our initial useless firemen, they will push themselves to the very limit. If you can stop them five minutes before the very before that they hit the edge, then you know life is good for injury pre prevention. Sure. Their initial market is golf. Uh -huh. At the point that you're swinging a golf club, the change in weight between one foot from the other, mm -hmm. that is a big part of what distinguishes a great player from just a good player. And at this point, the, the tools for measuring that are expensive. <clears throat> you can only use them sort of in the lab. You can't take them out and, and go on a real golf course where the, you know, where you're hitting on a slope or whatever. <clears throat> so at the point that we can put this into a shoe, we can go and, you know, under real world conditions, tune people's swings, give them feedback on every swing. And at the point we can make a, an inexpensive device every golfer can have. We can improve every golfer's game rather than just the you know, you know the the people who who can afford expensive expensive pros. Yeah. And every and every golfer's game needs improvement. We know that. But let me ask you this, Russell. Before we we go, where where oh, time has flown, we're almost out of it. Um, I know your company, Responsible Solutions, with your partner Chris Foltz, are working hard. Uh, in on things in the mental health area. So, so how do you attack that problem? Uh, well, that <clears throat> that is a a problem of problems of problems. 
we have problems of social stigma so that people don't get help. We have problems of misaligned incentives. We have systems that where insurance reimbursement will say, spend a whole lot of money now, treat us an acute problem. And it's not an acute problem, right? People did, people did not get, uh, unless it is genetic, did not get a mental illness over the course of, a, of an hour or a day or a month. It took years, sometimes a lifetime. You're not going to fix it in an hour or a day or a month. So we need to think about it over longer, peri over longer periods of time rather than throwing money at it very, you know, very acutely with high intensity inpatient care. Mm -hmm. So pieces of this are, how do we get people to think about it better? Pieces of, of this are better technologies. So one of the, one of the companies we're working with is making better, mon better monitoring systems, Alicia, with the idea that we can tell biological changes before someone's likely to have an episode or a relapse, right? Mm -hmm. We should know that someone is becoming stressed enough that, that they need help now before they go and they restart using a drug or making another suicide attempt. So a very little bit of, of real time technology can, can save a lot of lives and, and re repair a lot of lives. Yeah, so, that's, that's fascinating. Um, we're out of, out of time. I want to thank you, um, Russell, remind everybody that you're listening to the Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me. We have a companion, companion podcast now called The Angel. Make sure to rate us, rank us. Also subscribe to us on all the major platforms. Uh, we're also on Spotify, audio and video and on YouTube. Um, Russell, your career is amazing. You've been a terrific guest. And I want everyone to know that Russell is playing hurt today, is not feeling well at all, and came off his sickbed to, uh, to do this, which we appreciate um and and um and value uh value your wisdom so thank you so much for being with us russell appreciate it wouldn't miss it for the world <laughs> nice of you to say well thanks everybody and uh, remember we'll be back with another podcast before you know it